Welcome to our podcast series, Getting to the Core Issues. Hello, I'm Joanne Bellotta. And I'm Marianne Harmston. Each segment, we will interview healthcare innovators whose models will help transform the healthcare delivery system and provide solutions to the healthcare puzzle. Today, we're pleased to introduce Omar Ba, founder and executive director of the Refugee Dream Center. The center is a resettlement refugee agency offering services which target gaps within the refugee community. It ensures the continuation of services such as housing, education, and health services in an effort to assist refugees in becoming self-sufficient and successful in their integration in America. Omar has survived torture and is a refugee and former journalist from the Gambia in West Africa. He is the author of the book, Africa's Hell on Earth, The Ordeal of an African Journalist. He also currently represents the state of Rhode Island at the Refugee Congress of the United Nations High Commissioner in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Omar. Thank you so much, both of you. Oh, thanks for for being on our podcast. Yes, we're thrilled to meet you, Omar. We are. So, Omar, how old were you when you came to the United States? You were already a journalist. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience growing up in Gambia and your and what it's like to, um, you know, over there and what uh, prompted you to, to come here and, and open up the Dream Center? I was 27 years old when I came here in 2007. I came straight to Rhode Island, Providence. And uh, I know that looks like I was very young when I was a journalist in Gambia, but I started when I was about 20, 21 years old, uh, started reporting uh, as a journalist. And what prompted me to work as a reporter was because I wanted a voice and I wanted to give a voice to the most vulnerable uh, members of the population in, in Gambia. The reason being, I grew up in rural Gambia where uh, the, uh, the opportunities are very scarce, and that made me uh, want have a sense of purpose to want change uh, for uh, our country. And the reason is, uh, so many people, especially women and children, die of things that could be preventable. For instance, women die during labor. Children die. A lot of children die before the age of five. And women go to the hospital for labor on in the backs of donkey carts. When, because there's no ambulance or at the hospital, there is not enough opportunities there because their women are lined up in big halls where they sit on cement floors. Sometimes they're delivered of their babies in such large halls without privacy, without enough uh, support. There's not enough uh, health care or enough medicine or enough uh, people who are qualified to support these children or women. And as a child going to school also, um, I contracted malaria several times. I, just by luck, I survived it without dying like the many other children who died of malaria. And I walked for several miles to school without the opportunities to get into a school bus or use uh, sometimes without shoes in the hot sun, tattered rags. And on some occasions, I've sit, I sat under a tree for a, cl- a classroom or the classroom would be a fence of uh, palm leaves would be the fence, you know, the, the walls of the classroom. So with, after all the suffering and extreme poverty, you know, living in a village where there's no clean drinking water, where there's no enough food or medicine. I went to the city after high school. I wanted to just have a voice to voice out about these things because you know, I knew the government was living in luxury. You know, everybody in government had a lot of money to live. And that's what got me into journalism. And eventually I uh, ran into a lot of trouble because the things I was writing from my sense, from my own 
life uh, perspective. The government didn't like that. And I ended up, you know, being tortured in a military camp very severely. And I still have marks of that, of that torture in a military camp for my work as a reporter. And eventually in 2006, I was forced into exile because the president declared me a wanted person for investigating him. My pictures were blasted across the media, on TV and radio and newspapers. And eventually I, I was lucky to escape, but my pictures were still pasted and the announcements that I'm wanted. So you had to get out. You had no choice. I want to just take you back. You referenced the Gambia. Is that a sector of West Africa? And is it impacted by drought? Why is it that, I mean, I clearly understand that the people in government that are living a luxurious lifestyle are reaping the rewards. What What is the product of Gambia? Is it known for, or is it impacted so much by drought that there are no um, farming products or what, what's the economy driven by? Mostly by agriculture, but uh, the second largest source of revenue for the government is tourism. A lot of European tourists, uh, believe it or not, go to Gambia in Western Africa. It's, it's one of the main tourist hubs in West Africa. It has beautiful beaches. The agricultural sector used to do well, but until recently when the drought is uh, creeping in, we don't have as many rains as we used to. And it's because the, there's deforestation, you know, there's not much order. So there's not, uh, it's a, farm, farming is not much uh, very luxurious nowadays. There's extreme poverty. There's literally just not money. Most of the country succeeds on aid money from European Union, the, the U.S. government or China or loans, and that's how they survive, or a little bit they get from tourism. When you came here, how was it that you selected Rhode Island to come to? I really don't know how I came to Rhode Island. What happened was, when I escaped and became a refugee, I was uh, placed in Ghana, and in Ghana I was living in very uh, difficult uh, circumstances because I didn't really know what my future was. I lived in a, a small room that was made out of cardboard. The walls, some of the walls were cardboard, just like the typical way refugees live in open settings or in refugee camps. And by that, during that time, the United States Embassy in Ghana was helping me to get resettled, to get moved out of Ghana because I was very sick, I was scared, and I was very paranoid. And the dictator was still looking for me. They were still announcing my name in Gambia that I'm wanted for investigating the president. So the American government thought I'm not safe there. They needed to move me out quickly. So within one year, luckily for me, uh, my case was... Uh, upheld you know and accepted by the u.s government and i was uh, approved for resettlement as a refugee in the united states i didn't know where i was going until one day before my arrival and i was told uh, i'm going to the u.s you know i was thinking about the the usual names that people hear which is new york washington dc the big big names mm -hmm. then one day before my arrival i asked I asked a caseworker at one of the agencies that were processing my paperwork to come. The agency is called IOM, International Organization for Migration. Mm -hmm. They were the ones that the U.S. government contracts to do the travel arrangement for refugees before they come in. So I asked this caseworker, where am I going to? He said, oh, you're going to Providence. I, I stopped because I said, well, that sounds, is it like a church group or <laughs> right. what is that about? He said, no, it's not a church group. Because I mean, I thought, I mean, that some of the social services are usually religious organizations. Right. I, I, I was excited. I was happy because at least I'm, I'm going to be in good hands, but I was just didn't know what it means. He said, right. no, it's a city actually. It's the capital city of Rhode Island. I said, okay, wait a minute. I'm going to Rhode Island. He said, yes. 
that's is the capital city of Rhode Island. So you go to Rhode Island. I said, all right, this is gonna be very very bad for me because I don't think I'll go. Then the guy looked at me and said, what do you mean by you don't think you'll go? I said because the U.S. Embassy for the entire year they processing my case. They clearly told me I'm going to America, not an island. So, <laughs> so I was really very scared, you know. I just didn't. I wanted to go to America at least get out of all these troubles and feel safe for the first time, rather than just going to an island and then never settle again, you know. The guy showed me the map of the U.S. He said, you know, this is Rhode Island. <laughs> he touched Rhode Island. <laughs> there may be islands there. But it's a state. It's part of America. You know, Omar, do you know who named Rhode Island, Rhode Island? Do you know the story uh, when Verrazano was exploring in the 1500s? He explored the lower uh, New York Harbor. And then he came up and explored Narragansett Bay. And when he looked at all the islands, one of them reminded him of the Isle of Rhodes. And that's how it became Rhode Island. Ah. So it's very easy to see why someone... <laughs> Another country would think it's an island because certainly Verrazano did when he was exploring. We're delighted that you were able to then proceed to Rhode Island. Did you come with your family? No, I came by myself. I was on my own. So when I came to Rhode Island, I was supported by a caseworker from the Dorcas International Institute of Rhode Island. I did not know anybody, no family, no friend. I was literally starting everything from scratch, from the bottom. There were, was no refugee from the Gambia. There were some immigrants from the Gambia, but at that time I was so distressed and so paranoid. I didn't want to interact with people from the Gambia who are not refugees because I didn't know who to trust and who not to trust. My case was just so peculiar that I was afraid of anything that could jeopardize. I, I didn't even want Gambians to know I live in Rhode Island. Like, right. I wanted to hide and settle down with my life. So the only, I was the only refugee here from Gambia. So then that's how I started building a relationship with refugees from other parts of the world, like people from Rwanda, Burundi, Iraq, Afghanistan. So I started just building a coalition because that, that was my family. That's my new world. And everybody around me was going through what I was going through, high levels of distress and PTSD and, you know, trauma in adjusting to a new situation. So I, I just, that became my world. And my wife was still in Gambia. We were married for only two months before she, before I escaped. And on Luckily, by the, when I was being sought after, it was from work, so I had to just run. And I couldn't even call her because then they would, if the government see the calls coming in, they would think she knows where I am and yes, she would be killed. So I didn't see any member of my family. I couldn't escape with any of them. A lot of them were arrested and tortured. A lot of them were on the house arrest like my wife. She couldn't leave for almost two years. So it was just a difficult situation. And it took three years from the day I left Gambia to the day she came to join me in Rhode Island. So three And how wonderful that she works with you side by side at the Refugee Dream Center. You mentioned before that there were some immigrants as well as as the refugees. Talk a little bit about the difference between a refugee and an immigrant. A lot of people get confused about these two terms. And sometimes when you want to make it, explain the difference, some people, you know, bring in the political uh, tensions uh, that emerge. And, but point here is not to diminish the experience of any group. You know, it's not to make it look like one suffers more than the other. It's just that they're different. The refugee, which I am, is somebody who was never prepared for their journey. You leave, and in most cases, it's because of war, because of conflicts, 
uh, in your village or in your town and bombs started start dropping on your building in the village or killing people the next person next to you probably is shot and killed and you see blood oozing and you run like that when you and are lucky to end up in another country that is what a refugee is in most cases people are separated with their loved ones some die some get lost forever that people that never find them and you do not get to take your belongings sometimes you just grab what is next to you if it is a bag you grab that bag if it is a piece of cloth you grab that or sometimes with nothing people walk for miles and miles sometimes hundreds of miles or thousands of miles before ending up in a in the middle of nowhere in the ne- in the next country and setting up camp and these camps are like tents that people live in sometimes plastic bags or clothes and then the UN will come and supply them with food and more additional tents and then you live there sometimes 10 15 years people live in these camps out of those millions of people the US government takes a small number sometimes 100,000 when the policies is to be more favorable now about 20,000 a year and bring them and bring those people to the US to give them a second chance and sometimes they look at the most vulnerable like me because a dictator was seeking after me I could have been killed in Africa or like elderly and older women or like children people like who are or people with disabilities people who are more vulnerable so those are the ones that are usually brought in here to give them this chance to a second life and then they usually work very hard when they come in because they have uh, workers permits uh, they struggle work very hard because they and they don't get themselves involved in trouble because they've had enough there are other reasons why people become refugees also and some of these are because you maybe you belong to a certain group like me being a journalist there was no active war in Gambia but because of the dictatorship and my pro- troubles my belongingness to a journalism group is a reason for somebody to be designated a refugee some people because they belong to groups like LGBTQI groups and they may be in danger in certain countries that also is is all reason for people to be given the protection as refugees but immigrant is people who travel on their own does it mean there may be i mean there may be some poverty in their countries there may be reasons why they don't want to live in their country or maybe they just want to come as tourists or maybe they want to come and be married to somebody else in america or they want to come and be students in the united states or they just want to come and start business in america there are people who travel on their own does not mean you don't travel for a reason but you travel apply for a visa and then travel when you arrive you may get married to an american eventually become a citizen or you may go back to your country or you may eventually get a work permit to stay forever or you may just apply for protection or, or you may be here going to school and then war breaks out in syria for example and then you apply for protection and because you don't want to go back to a war torn country so it's just different this difference does not in any way diminish the fact that immigrants go, have a lot of challenges when they come to the us have their own sets of challenges but they are different i always say the best way to figure out what a refugee is when they come to america the body is here but the soul is here back home not even in the camp but back home because you were forced to leave you had no option and you were not prepared and you're still in that mindset of being back home there and you have that strong sense of loss how do you cross the border then in your own mind do you at some point decide you want to become american or do you always want you know it's it's a struggle isn't it listening to you it's like wow what percentage of refugees settle in the united states and then return the us resettlement program is to me is one of the most successful 
if not the most successful in the world. Until recently, the U.S. used to resettle more refugees than any country in the world, meaning, you know, going to a camp and taking a couple mm-hmm. of thousands. Because when people come in here, the American system emphasizes one thing, which is integration. In some other countries, it is not the case. And it becomes very prolonged and difficult for people to just understand that, that concept of self-sufficiency. At the Refugee Dream Center, for example, we do not, we, unless it's by mistake, we just do not use the word assimilation because it, it defeats the purpose of self-sufficiency or also just that kind of self-esteem and retaining your identity and offer something to society. So we use integration, which means we understand there's always that kind of sense of home that you have that feeling of loss and that yearning to bring together that uh, home and the new home. So we understand that that as a refugee, you are always in between two walls. You are never in one world entirely together. So you are always in two walls. So in so doing, we recognize, you know, keeping your identity and will help you build a bridge between you and the American society because then you have something to offer. You have even your dress, your food, you are offering something to Americans. Mm-hmm. But then you must also embrace something, for instance, the language, the culture. Integration literally means balancing the two so that both are together. So in so doing, you know, refugees do very well in the U.S. You know, within a short time, people start speaking English, start driving, and then, you know, they, they, they become very functional. They walk, you know, back and forth. They're part of the society. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like people are isolated or quarantined as in some other countries when they're resettled. And then many comparisons that are done, if you compare, let's say, Somali refugees in London, then this is a a study that was done. Somali refugees in London and Somali refugees in in Minnesota. You compare the same groups that arrived at the same time in these two cities, you see that the Somali refugees in Minnesota are doing much better. And this is because of this emphasis on self-sufficiency and integration. So what kind of support does the U.S. provide when someone is coming in as a refugee? Financially, um, do they help you with housing? How does that work? I mean, you'll be surprised to know that actually many countries, including Canada and other countries, provide more financial support to refugees when they arrive than the U.S. But but the refugees in the U.S. often do much better. It's it's a challenge, though. And this is, again, because of the emphasis on integration and self-sufficiency. So people, we just want people to be like any American. It's a lot of hassle, but then it's difficult. So within three months, most refugees stop getting support from the federal government. It goes up to about six months. Mm -hmm. A few exceptions, especially people with disabilities, it goes up to about a year or so. But on average, within three months, every refugee stops getting support. And so you are literally on your own. And actually, that's why I founded the Refugee Dream Center, because when I, st- when I came in, I was volunteering and saw that a lot of refugees were struggling. For instance, it's practically impossible for someone to be able to read and write English within three months. It is difficult mm-hmm. for people to absorb all this information about healthcare, about especially the preventative health approach. When some of the cultures where people come from, our approach is post-health. You have to be very sick before you see the doctor. So I, I realized, you know, a lot of the work actually has to be done a few months after the person's arrival. That's actually when they start to settle in to be able to absorb a lot more support. So that's why we do this post uh, refugee resettlement approach at the Refugee Dream Center. So it is a short time, a little bit of money, and refugees actually pay their own tickets when they're coming. Refugees and pay their own tickets? Their own tickets. Um, that's, uh, a lot of people don't know that. When 
somebody's approved, you sign is a loan agreement with the US government, and then that loan agreement is zero interest, though you don't pay any interest on it, but within six months of your arrival, the bills start, start coming, you must pay that. Imagine a family of five, six. I mean, most refugee families are large families. Mm -hmm. imagine, imagine a large family, you are getting a bill of 15,000 on average, you know, to start paying because of your air tickets. But mm -hmm. people pay it because they don't want trouble. They pay everything, they pay on time, and then they work. And so that's the, the emphasis again is on self-sufficiency and uh, integration. Work. I just want to emphasize it's a lot of work. It's a lot of hassle. It increases the stressors that people experience. There's a lot of PTSD, depression and anxiety because as refugees, you are not only faced with the trauma of the past, let's say the so witnessing violence or uh, surviving torture uh, or living in a camp in extreme situations and for women especially let's say women from war-torn countries a lot of women are survivors of rape so they come in here with all that trauma they face with new traumas sets of trauma which is uh, adjusting to the new culture culture shock they're also faced with issues as uh, language barriers you know not understanding the u.s healthcare system stigma mm -hmm. in seeking and accessing mental health services and financial challenges so a lot of new stressors come together compounded with the past trauma so uh, the refugees are a very very unique population that are piling up them, carrying a heavy load on themselves it's an amazing challenge how long after you came into the country were you here before you opened the refugee dream center so the refugee dream center is four years old i always tell people i feel like it's 10 or 11 years old <laughs> i started walking the streets since i came 11 years ago and it started mostly with uh, rwandan uh, survivors of genocide you know I, became very good friends of them and some Liberians and Iraqi and then some Bhutanese. We have started organizing within the community. Sometimes it's advocacy around housing or around uh, benefits that refugees were getting. And then eventually it became a lot of service, like direct service. You know, I started gathering students and volunteers to help refugees apply for apartments or move from one apartment to the other. Then before I realized a couple of years later, and this is not sustainable, Omar. I cannot be doing all this from the streets and I will break into pieces. I'm going to school, I'm working. So it became practically impossible to just function in that ad hoc basis. So that's why I launched the Refugee Dream Center so that I'm able to do this both direct service and advocacy. So it's four years old. Wow. But it's a result of a lot of other work that makes me feel like it's actually much older than that. <laughs> <laughs> now talk about some of the services that you offer there because there's quite a few that you provide, um, you know, like primary care and, and um, services for first aid, CPR training, other things like that too, in addition to the services you've mentioned. Our mission is, is twofold. One is advocacy and one is uh, direct services because we realize they must go together in order to be more holistic in, in support. And for the direct services, we have four programs. One is health promotion. The second is adult education. So the third is case management and four is youth mentoring. And so with, in, in terms of health promotion, we use the preventative health approach where uh, a lot of it is, is, is a combination of education and cultural orientation. So with the cultural orientation, we include processes where everything we do, we make people aware of the American system, American uh, support system where they do not have to be in a situation where they are, they are waiting until it's too late 
to seek services. As a lot of refugees come from the Middle East and Africa or Southeast Asia, these cultures are very similar. For instance, we don't go to the hospital until it's very late, mm-hmm. until you feel very sick. Like what takes people to the ER, to the emergency room here, that's what takes people to the normal doctor's appointment. Mm-hmm. in So those are the kind of things we do in the American healthcare system. Then we also have partners coming from Lifespan, Rhode Island Hospital to come and train people on CPR and first aid. We have medical students who also train people on other stuff like personal hygiene. And then uh, we talk about, we have sessions on domestic violence. We have sessions on uh, uh, coping skills, mental health coping skills. There's a lot of uh, smoking and alcoholism within refugee communities, especially among men. We also have sessions on those. So a lot of it becomes like preventative before it gets, it gets late. And sometimes yeah. you realize people well, don't very solid approach to that though that's the best way to handle it i think exactly and then sometimes there may be services out there people talking about it but they don't know about the refugee community Mm -hmm. because it's very hard to reach population or the refugees don't know about those services or don't know how to access them that's why we find ourselves as a buffer like a bridge you know I think a bridge is a very good definition. In order to educate them and make them aware of all the wellness programs that are available, which is wonderful because then it prevents people from getting sicker, where do you find that most of your population actually receives their primary care? Well, most refugees go to Rhode Island Hospital for primary care services because, I mean, again, it comes down to the cultures again because the term hospital and Rhode Island, the combination of those two make refugees feel comfortable and happy and trusting that okay this is the best and is the biggest because Rhode Island is the state okay it's the state hospital and it's a hospital sure. so they hardly go to community health centers even though they are more accessible they hardly go to other like private clinics overwhelmingly most go to Rhode Island hospital where they get very good service and then uh, there's a new wave of you know cultural competent providers who understand services does Rhode Island hospital are you talking about them using the emergency room or is there an actual program set up for them? There is a primary care place where we work with them, we work with interpreters and uh, cultural brokers, transport, also transport refugees to keep up with appointments, but also to ensure that people understand that I can go to the hospital without being sick, which is very difficult for people to understand. A lot of people use the ER the emergency room because people just wait until when it's too late or when they are very sick before going to to the doctor's office and that's when they call 911 and go to the ER. So Mm -hmm. the ER sees a lot of us refugees and that's what we are one of the things we are trying to improve here at the Refugee Dream Center through this cultural orientation health training. That's great. Is your goal to see more dream centers throughout the United States? I know you're you know you're active with the UN and how does that build your model and grow it other places? Refugee Dream Center model I've met so many people across this country, especially former refugees who are very active and, you know, leaders within their communities. But I have not seen the Refugee Dream Center model in any state, or it may, but I don't know. So my hope is actually to really help replicate it in different states because it has a combination of a lot of things, which one is, it's very empowering. It's like survival leaders helping fellow survivors or refugees helping fellow refugees. And it's culturally competent in a way that you as a mirror they look at you or he came and resettled okay i can do it too so mm-hmm. those are things that i want to emphasize but again one of the things is that it also creates an opportunity for other states to learn from what we are doing so that we can 
complement each other. Even if we don't do it in another state, we can probably partner with others to yes. complement this in other places. There's an organization in New Jersey called Oasis, and Oasis is doing a lot of what you're doing with women who never received their high school education and have never entered the workforce. Wow. So they groom them to be able to get their GEDs and also to get wellness care. And that's with a, an American-born population in a, in a low socioeconomic area. Um, yes, and it's, it's something that is, it would be very compatible compatible with your Excellent. organization so i'm going to uh, offline give you some information about that That's realizing your incredible amount of capabilities and drive your higher education your ability to go into the university of rhode island and the other programs that you have your master's degrees from how were you able to access that much education was it just something you set your mind to did you have somebody guiding you along the way because you came over you were 27 years old but then you went on to go to the University of Rhode Island, and I think you also attended a few other schools. I don't have a, a complete list in front of me. Do you attribute that to not only your, your incredible talent and um, drive, but did you have some assistance to guide you in that direction? It's a combination of many. You know, a lot of people help me around. You know, people encourage me and support me and just keep pushing me. But I think the fundamental thing is also my sense of resilience of really having a target goal of something and wanting to do it. And one of the basic things that I want to make sure I do is to get the skills to be able to serve the refugee community better. And I think it does, just doesn't happen with a mere passion. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of people have the passion, but then if you don't have the skills, you'll not be able to take it to the next level. So that really encouraged me to go to the next level, to, to get the education that I need. It's been tough, very, very tough. You know, I'm very busy, you know, running a family, work and organization, you know, having to do all the grants and proposals and everything, yet, you know, going to school. So it's very difficult. Sometimes it's just so stressful, but I never think about giving up because I know no. I'm, what Good I want. Well, a lot of people <laughs> are counting on you, Omar. Yes. The work that so, you do. Can you talk about your work with the United Nations? What is the purpose of the Refugee Con- Congress and what are your goals um, for, for the United Nations? The United Nations created this uh, new uh, organization called the Refugee Congress that meets in Washington once or twice a year. And then when we go there, we do advocacy, trainings, and policy-related activities with partners and lawmakers uh, on the Hill. How it is done is literally like the U.S. Congress, but it's just one person per state. And we are not elected. We are not, <laughs> there's no votes, but we, they call us delegates. So there's a, one refugee is selected per state. And I, I was the one selected from Rhode Island. I have no idea what, how that happened, but I was selected to represent Rhode Island. And I went to Washington and met 50 other delegates, one from each of the 50 states. And these are all people who came here as refugees at different times. Actually, there are people who came from the Second World War, Jewish refugees who came after the Second mm-hmm. World War, uh, as children, but now they are much older now. From all over the world at different times. So we represent different states. So it was really very exciting you know, to meet people, to learn from each other, see the passion and, and skills from different states. And that is basically what it is about. And uh, so I represent Rhode Island and go to Washington and advocate for the interests of Rhode Islanders or Rhode Island refugees. And uh, we come back 
with more skills and policy ideas. Now that you've been here for, well, you came when you were 27, mm -hmm. so I don't know exactly how many years you have been here, but um, I would think it's over 10 years now that you've been here. 11 years. 11 years, okay. Mm -hmm. So in that time, one of the things that you spoke about that I think the American public, we try to get it, our hands around it, but there seems to be a lot of confusion. Back in the days of the great migrations, uh, the immigrations of the late 1800s and the 1900s, when the Italian people came, the Irish, the Germans, yeah. the Polish, etc. There was almost like a unified thought that once you got here, and you chose to use the word uh, integrate rather than assimilate, I can tell you that in conversations that I've had with other people are struggling with the understanding of what does it mean for a refugee? Do they want to become American? And in this day and age, what does it mean to be an American? Do you find that kind of conflict? And how do you handle that? A lot of refugees, all they want is to belong. Because for a long time, they have been denied that. It's not by choice. They had no alternative. They want to belong. Once they come in, they want to speak English. They want to work. They want to give back. They want to pay their loans, their travel loans. They want to pay taxes. They want to just be like any other American. Especially refugee young, young children, within a short time, they talk with an American accent. No difference. You will not even know these kids were not born here. So they try their best to integrate. So being an American is... Avoiding trouble, paying taxes, working hard, not, not depending on welfare. And then when the moment people have the opportunity to adjust their status, they do. With every refugee I know, within five years, after five years, when they are qualified to be citizens, they apply and become citizens. They vote, they participate in activities that have to, that are uh, civic involved, like voting or being voted for. Actually, a friend of mine who was one of the members of the Refugee Congress in Washington, representing Montana, a refugee from, uh, from, Hel from uh, Liberia, is currently the mayor of Helena, Montana. Good. Wow, that's a big city. That's impressive. Of all yeah. places. So a refugee, I don't know other populations, but refugees are the ones who yearn most to be as yeah. American as, as, as it could be. Thank you so because much. We are, because we are grateful. That it's the only opportunity we have to be humans again, being in America. And then imagine you come in here, you have electricity, water, safety, everything you have. People are so kind and nice to you. And then you have the chance to go to school. You have the chance to drive a car. People who walk probably miles that ne sometimes never own a bicycle, you can drive a car. You can vote, you can travel. It's just incredible. Can well, you? I don't think anybody could have said it any better than that, Omar. That's for sure. Do you have any message you want to leave our listeners with? Any advice for new refugees or, or anything you'd like, any message you'd like to get out about the dream? Dream Center to our listeners. I just wanted to thank everybody, every listener or anybody who has supported the Refugee Dream Center one way or the other. We are just so grateful because it is just by dint of faith in Americans that we actually founded the Refugee Dream Center because we know people will believe in what we are doing. This is a very good cause, you know, coming and helping new refugees believe that they can resettle, they can adjust, and they can also be self-sufficient and be like any other American. And that is exactly what we are doing here. And to the American general population, I think what may be lacking within the society and in the political discourse everywhere is lack of enough information or conversation or communication. Yes. What we need is more awareness to understand yes. that it is not what we are hearing that we are opening borders for the world to come and flood in. No. Actually, this is the time at this period is when 
less less people are coming into this country, either through immigration or refugee status. But in past times, from the Second World War to now, more people used to come. So mm-hmm. it is a, it is not that many people are coming. It's, but the few numbers that are coming that we are bringing, we are doing it as a nation because these people go through a process. We pick them up from refugee camps and bring them here. They are not terrorists. They are, survi- they are survivors of terrorism or they are victims of terrorism. They are not one religion. They are every re- religion. They are from mm-hmm. all over the world too. They are not from only one part of the world. So we just remember we are helping the most vulnerable in the entire world. Mm-hmm. And that is not politics, has nothing to do with Republican Democrat because when I came, it was a Republican president that was here, George W. Bush. He resulted one of the biggest numbers of refugees in history, very generous. He knew the compassion and he helped. So it has nothing to do with politics or with party belongingness. It is just the American culture and the American spirit of helping the most wow. vulnerable. That's what makes this, that's what has always made this country great. There's a, a song by a popular uh, star, recording star, Neil Diamond, and it's called Coming to America. And the words to the song, if you have never heard Neil Diamond's Coming to America, it starts off, you know, they come from everywhere, from the seas, from across the seas. We're coming to America to build a new future. It's in very inspirational song. Right. If you've never heard it, I suggest that you listen to it. I saw him perform it at the Old World Trade Center many, many years ago, and I still get chills when I hear that song. I want to tell you that we wish you all the best, Thank and you. we want to offer any assistance to promote your efforts to improve integration and help mm-hmm. refugees become productive Americans. The world needs many pathways to success. It's been a delight having you as a podcast guest. Thank you so much, Omar. It was a pleasure meeting you. I enjoyed your speech at the um, Health Equity Zone Summit yeah. where I, I met you. And this has been a pleasure. And I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this podcast. Now, thank you so much, Joanna and Mary. For further information about the Dream Center and about about Omar, please visit our website at www.exigentkey.com. Thank you and have a great day.